Well, good morning, church. Glad to be back with you and look forward to seeing you Friday at 5. I've been asked to preach a sermonette of sorts, a short sermon on Friday and look forward to encouraging you and uh, sharing a few truths from God's Word with you this Friday at 5. This morning we'll be back in the fifth Psalm, Psalm chapter 5, but before we look to God's Word, let's go to His throne in prayer. Will you bow with me? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank You that, that You hear us. We thank You that we can come into Your presence. Lord, as we think of those words recorded in your word that John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Oh, so much in that word, behold. Lord, help us to behold you even now this morning, to to see you for who you are, to realize who you are, to, to take you in, to be humbled by you. Oh, that we would behold you, God. We would know our God that we would see you in your word. God, would you speak to us? Would you bind up our wounds? Would you strengthen us for the days and the years ahead? Oh God, we need you. Our constant, constant plea, Lord, is we need you. Oh, would you be near us? You've promised to, and we, we trust your promises. In Christ's name, amen. If you look in the fifth Psalm, Psalm chapter 5, we'll read all of this psalm in its entirety. Not sure we'll be able to get through all this psalm, but Lord willing, we'll get as far as we need to this morning. Psalm chapter 5, the very word of God here for us. What a gift he has given us. and He has preserved for us his word without error. Psalm chapter 5, the superscription reads, For the choir director for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. And the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So last week we we looked at verses 1 through 3, if you remember that. And uh, in those verses we see David here, the psalmist, inspired by God the Holy Spirit to write this. But David wrote this worship song, this psalm. And in those verses 1 through 3, we see David, he's he's pleading with the Lord. that, That God would give ear to David's words. That God would consider David's groanings. Uh, that God would heed his cry. That described David's prayer, and it still does this morning here in Psalm 5. His prayer was words and groanings and crying. 
So, so David's pleading with God to give ear, to listen, to consider, to understand, to give heed, to pay attention to his prayer. And this prayer was directed, do you remember last week, to the Lord, to Yahweh, as we uh, understand that word to be translated, the one true God, the, the, the great I am, the eternally existent one, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And the psalmist here, David, calls him his God and his king. And he's praying with this full assurance in Psalm 5 here. He's, he's confident that God really does hear his prayer. And then David says that he eagerly watches. He has this great anticipation to see what God will do. He's looking for, he's searching out, he's being vigilant, he's being observant to see how God will really answer his prayer. And as he lays out his prayer, he has arranged his prayer. He has carefully handled and laid his prayer out before God. And then David looks to God for the answer. After he has prayed, he will expect the blessing. What, whatever God ordains is best. There's, there's no stipulations put on God here. God, I have prayed to you. I have submitted it to you. And God, whatever you ordain is best. But with much anticipation, I look to see how you will answer. And then we asked last week, are we doing this in our own lives? In the morning, as the psalmist says, are we going to God in prayer and are we laying out our prayers before God? Are we reporting to our king for duty? And then are we like David? Are we waiting in this anticipation? Are we believing that God will answer us according to his perfect will and according to his perfect timing? And as we read this psalm, we just, we just see it here that David is just so confident in his prayer. He's confident that his, his prayer has risen to the very throne room of heaven, that his, his prayer has made it to the presence of God, and now he eagerly watches to see what God will do. Where does this confidence come from? How, how, can, how can David just pour out his heart so freely to God? How can he be so sure that God will hear him and answer him and rescue him? And that's the message of Psalm 5 is... That David's hope, his assurance, is grounded in the character of God. He's confident that God will hear his prayer because he knows who God is. And we can have this confidence when our hope is grounded in God. You know, maybe, maybe you've said this before or, or maybe you've heard it said before and, and you say, I'm, I'm not really into theology and I, I don't really like doctrine. I, I just love Jesus. Well, I think we don't understand the, the word doctrine and we don't understand the word theology because why do you love Jesus? Well, you, that's doctrine. And, and why would you worship Jesus? Well, that's some more doctrine. And why should we worship him? And why should we not worship anyone else? And why is there salvation? In Je that's, that's all doctrine. That's all theology, the study of God. And so what I, what I want us to begin to understand this morning is that when we know who God is, then our faith can begin to take root and we have something to grasp onto when those trials come. The more you know who God is, the more you know truth, the bigger your faith is, the more assurance you have the more confidence you have in your God and your King. There's no stability in surface level Christianity. We must grow, grow in our understanding of who God is and we see and know and come to realize who God is by knowing his word. That's who David has this great confidence. It's how he has this great confidence because he knows he knows exactly who God is. God does not change. Look at James 1.17 on our slide. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. 
Brothers and sisters, this morning I want to assure you and remind you that God does not change. He does not change. And for the Christian, there is much, much joy and much assurance in that. We change, do we not? We are some fickle people. Some days our passions run high and some days our passions run low. Some days we don't even like ourselves. But God does not change. There's no variation in him. There's no shifting shadow in him. He is the same. And we can be certain of that. And and so, because we know uh, who God is, that he is the same, he doesn't change, he's immutable, we can be absolutely certain that God will hear us and he will save us when we take refuge in him. So in the remainder of, of Psalm 5, we'll really see these four aspects, these four characteristics Four attributes of of God. There are many more, but in this psalm particularly, we'll see four. And those are that God is holy and that God is loving. And then we'll see another pair that God is just and God is kind. But this morning, we'll see that God is holy and God is loving. There is this battle between truth and lies, between justice and injustice, between right and wrong. And God is not neutral in this battle. And if you are a Christian, you too will take right and wrong more seriously than anyone else on this earth. And yet, we do not hate sin enough. We, we don't get upset at the wickedness and the godlessness around us. We're so bombarded in this life with, with evil and with violence We've, we've got so accustomed to the darkness. Brothers and sisters, we need a high view of God. We, we need to be dominated with a lofty view of God. We need to, to see God more clearly, to know who he is more truly. God is infinitely holy. And God does not uh, approve of, he doesn't tolerate, he doesn't fellowship with sin in any way. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. And so we come to verse 4. Before that we see David, he's, he's expressing his resolution to pray. He says, I will pray. And then now we come to, to verse 4 and we hear what David is praying David is praying against the very things that God abhors. He's saying to God, God, you hate evil. So God, will you put it away from me? Will you deliver me from those who are evil? We need to be reminded because we forget so easily. God has no pleasure in evil. It doesn't matter how funny it is or how witty it presents itself or how charming it may look or how proudly it may strut itself. Sin's glitter has no charm upon God. And, and notice it's, it's not, uh, you know, just a little dislike. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. There is this total and thorough hatred which God has against sin, and as we'll even see, for the workers themselves of sin. And to, to be hated of God is, a, is the worst thing. It is, it is more than just an awful thing. It is, it is the worst thing to be hated by God. And so let us be faithful in, in the warning that's given here to the wicked. Let us be faithful to warn them that it is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing for the unbeliever to fall into the hands of an angry and a just God. And it's not just the evil workers, as we'll see, but it's even the evil speakers. And we'll see that here in a few verses as well. So read verses 4 through 6 with me. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. 
You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And so the first attribute, the first characteristic of who God is we see here is God is holy. We're reminded of that attribute that's often spoken thrice of our God. We see nowhere else in the Bible that God is love, 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 or that God is merciful, merciful, merciful. And he is all those things. And we will see that this morning. But the one attribute that is thrice spoken of throughout Scripture is that God is holy, holy, holy. When we think of God, do we think of that? Oh, God, you are holy, holy, holy. God is absolutely holy, and he rejects evil, and he rejects everyone who makes a practice of evil. God infinitely loves everything that is good, and he infinitely loves everything that is right, and that is true, and that is pure, which means if he loves everything infinitely that is good, and right, and true, and pure, then that means he hates everything that goes against it. His love and his wrath are two sides of one coin. The the purity of God's delight in righteousness and his perfect hatred against evil is what makes God holy. He is set apart from every other thing in this universe. Do we see that? Because he is holy and because he loves what is good and right and true, therefore he must hate everything that is against things that are good and right and true and lovely. That's who he is. God's love and his wrath are not at odds with each other. They are two complementary sides of his holiness. Habakkuk, the prophet, says, You, God, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And so David here, he has this confident prayer. And he'll show us God's holy anger. In six steps. Look at verse four. First line. For you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. The first attribute under God's holiness is God does not delight in sin. God does not think sin is fun. God does not think sin is funny. God doesn't find sin attractive. God doesn't find sin entertaining in any way. God is repulsed by evil, and he is repulsed by wickedness wherever, whenever, and whatever it is. This is a very serious warning to us, because if we think about it, sin is really so central to so many things in our lives. Just just think of what we're bombarded with on the daily. Think of how many television shows, even children's shows and movies, they're, they're, just, they're just full of sinful relationships. They're full of adultery on, on so many sitcoms. And we don't even see it. We just see it as entertainment and fun and funny. And, and we've, 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 we've not stopped and thought, God is against sin. We've become so numb to it. So many things are full of gossip. So many things are full of jealousy. Even, even the music that you just always hear around you in stores and in restaurants, even if you're not playing it in your own homes, music so often is just talking about sin. If It's, it's no big deal, and, it, and it's pretty enjoyable. We, just listen closely, church. Sin will desensitize you as it entertains you. It will desensitize you as it entertains you. The book of Hebrews tells us that that sin hardens our hearts and it deceives us. And I get it's not popular to preach against sin. But I'm not here to please anyone. I just want to please God. And that's what sin does. It, It tricks us. And it hardens us. 
It desensitizes us. Our heart doesn't, doesn't feel anything anymore. And so it begins to entertain us, and we just lose track of it. But listen closely. According to God's Word, do you believe God's Word this morning? God does not delight in wickedness ever. Never. Leonard Ravenhill, one of my favorite evangelists, died many years ago. He said this. He said, entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. And don't misconstrue what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that we can't be entertained and, and be holy in doing that. But how often does the devil try to entertain us while taking away our joy? This is why God never tempts anyone to sin. Our slide, again, from James 1 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God never tries to get someone to do wrong, because he himself is repulsed by wrongdoing. But sin grows from the evil in our own hearts. God hates sin, and God will have no part in sin. Look at the second line in verse 4. No evil dwells with you. What it means by that is evil cannot exist in God's presence. The second step of holiness is that evil cannot exist in God's presence. No evil dwells with you. That word dwell there, it really means to, to sojourn or to visit. Sometimes when we think of dwelling place, we think of, well, we just live here. It's this ongoing reality. But the word here, dwell, it means visit. It means sojourn. It just means this, this uh, it gives us this mental image of a nomad just passing through and, and living in a tent for a little while. And so what God's word is saying is God is so incompatible with sin that even the most temporary existence is utterly impossible. Evil cannot dwell, evil cannot temporarily lodge in God's presence. It can't sojourn for just a little while with God. Evil cannot be God's guests, for that would entitle evil to God's care and God's protection. Evil is not welcome around God, and if it's not welcome temporarily or momentarily or for a little while with God, how do we think it's possible that it would be welcome around God eternally? Evil cannot even visit his presence. God's holiness is active. It, it purifies everything that it comes in contact with. Scripture says in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Evil cannot dwell in God's presence. That's why it's impossible, impossible for a genuine believer to continue in an ongoing lifestyle of sin. John says this in John First uh, John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The Spirit of God lives inside you, Christian, and he cannot tolerate sin. And if the Holy Spirit is at work within you, you will work to cleanse your lives from evil. Notice, though, it says a practice of sinning. That is a lifestyle. That is a, that's who you are. That's your habit. That's, that's just what you do. You're just sinning all the time. Does it say that we will not sin? We do fall short. There are times of temptation, but it is not who we are. We're not who we used to be before we came to Christ. We are now new creatures, and we are fighting sin. And so this isn't to stomp on you and, and to belittle you and make, make those of you who are struggling with sin in your life this morning think, what's the, what's the purpose? What chance do I have? So if you're fighting sin, that's a great, great indicator that you're a child of God. If you're fighting against sin, if you're repenting of sin, if you're struggling and warring with sin, then be encouraged. That's what Christians do. But if you are loving your sin and you're relishing your sin and you can't wait to add more sin to it and it controls you and that's all you can think about and that's who you are, well, then search yourself because that is not characteristic of a Christian. But a Christian is constantly fighting, fighting, Waging war, seeking forgiveness, repenting of sin. The Bible also says, Beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. About every other week, it seems, the fear of God keeps being brought up. And the fear of God leads to a holier life. May we fear God. And we learn the fear of God when we realize that he is a consuming fire. Personal holiness in our own lives begins in this life by the Holy Spirit's power at work in us. Praise God, it's not up to us. God working in us. And this, this sanctification, this being set apart, this, this, this uh, reality of, of being cleansed and purified, it's a progressive, it's an ongoing process. We become more and more obedient to Jesus Christ. And it will be completed when we are raised to new life in God's presence. God will make us holy because we cannot enter God's presence with even the slightest bit of evil. God's intolerance for evil, it was a great hope for David. Jesus' enemies will not have the last word because evil cannot exist in God's presence. Our third step of holiness, read the first line in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. What that means is God will not tolerate the arrogant. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. When David's enemies had their way, they strutted and they bragged. And even us, when we are shamed and we are hurt for the sake of Christ, even today, people will brag and laugh and strut around. They boast because they they think they've won. They, They think that you're defeated. But David was confident because he knew his enemies would not stand on the day when God judges the secrets of the hearts of men. That's why we're to be a humble people, not a boastful, not a braggadocious, not an arrogant people, but we are to be a humble people. Our fourth step, the last line of verse 5, speaking of God, God, you hate all who do iniquity. God hates those who do evil. God has a hatred for those who do wicked things. You hate, as some versions say, you hate all evil doers. You hate those who do iniquity. And believe me, I understand. This sounds quite strange to our ears because we're used to this phrase. God hates the sin. But he loves the sinner. So what should we make of this verse? That God hates those who do evil. God hates those who do iniquity. God hates all evildoers. What are we to do with this verse? What should we make of this truth? Where God makes his presence known, sinners cannot stand their ground. They cannot retain their position. If God hates them, it means that he rejects them completely because they are incompatible with his holiness and his righteousness. These words mean what they say. God thoroughly hates everyone who does evil. God cannot coexist with evil. He cannot tolerate those who do evil. And so we say, well, well, this kind of seems to clash with John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world. So what does this mean? Let's look carefully. Who are these evil doers or who are those who do iniquity? An evil doer is someone who sins as a way of life. If you're a Christian, this should not describe you because the Holy Spirit will not let sin be your normal lifestyle. You are working by the power of God, by the power of God the Holy Spirit to cleanse yourself from sin. But this does describe everyone who is apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, 3 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it's true. God hates all who do iniquity. And, and if we just stop right there, there's not a lot of hope in that. It's quite scary, and it should be. But... You and I will never grasp the greatness 
of God's love will never grasp the greatness of God's mercy unless you first understand his hatred for sin, his, his complete and total wrath for sin and sinners. God's anger against unrepentant sinners, it's never fashionable to those who are in love with their sins. But it is the foundation of the gospel. If you think it, you know, it wasn't no big deal for, for God to save me because, ah, you know, I'm, I'm already pretty good. Like, he just kind of had to fill in the gaps. And you've got the gospel all wrong this morning. The good news is not good unless you understand that God is furious against each and every sinner. And God's burning anger against sinners is also a key reason why we fight sin in our own life. If we understand that God hates evildoers, we'll do everything in our power not to be an evildoer. You'll never be serious about sanctification. You'll never be serious about holiness until you understand the depths of God's absolute fury and hatred for everyone who makes it a practice of wrongdoing. And so when you begin to understand that God hates all who do iniquity, that, that God hates evildoers, that's when the gospel, it just explodes. It explodes with God's glory. It explodes with his, his goodness. It, it, it explodes with his, his grace towards sinners. That's the good news. It's that God does save sinners. And like verse 5, we were those who do iniquity. That's who we used to be. But God reached out to us in his love. And he saved us from his wrath. And so we never water that down. We never say, well, God doesn't really, he doesn't really hate sinners. No, we say, God abhors sinners. He hates sinners. He is angry with sinners every day. But we go on and we say, but be reconciled to God. Be made right with God. Don't fall into the hands of an angry God, but be made right with him through the death of Jesus. Flee from his wrath. There is hope. There is forgiveness. There is love. There, there is adoption. There is hope. And he is a God of love. And he is a God of mercy. And oh, how great his mercy and his love look when we realize how real and how scary his anger for sinners truly is. It's both. It's both. Look at the fifth step of God's holiness in verse 6. You destroy those who speak falsehood. God destroys liars. Again, this may seem a bit strange to us. Because sometimes we're tempted to think, ah, you know, lying, it's not, I mean, it's not really that big of a deal, right? I mean, it's just words. But God takes truth and God takes honesty very, very seriously. Think of it this way. Our God is a speaking God. Language is a gift from God to us. Think all the way back on the first day of creation. God spoke. Let there be light. He is a speaking God. He is a God of, of words. That's who our God is. He speaks to us. He, he communicates with us. He, he takes speaking and telling truth very, very seriously. Language is a gift from God to us. Our God is not a silent God, but a God who communicates to us in words. Brothers and sisters, our God is a speaking God. Remember, sin entered the world through Satan's words. And we think of that prophet Isaiah when he had the vision of the Lord in his temple and his robe was, was filling the temple. His glory was filling the temple. And what did Isaiah say? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. When he came into the presence, when he came to the holiness of God, the first thing that came to his mouth, his mind was, oh, my mouth is filthy. 
I've not always used words correctly. I've not always spoken truth. I've hurt others with my words. I've not guarded my mouth. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then some of the very last words of Scripture, they they warn us that that those who practice falsehood will, will not be allowed into heaven. Revelations 22. Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the very last book of the Bible. Revelation 22, 15 says this. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters. And then listen closely. And everyone who loves and practices lying. Those are some heavy words. Those who love and practice lying. God does not think lying is funny or insignificant. Those who are outside the gates of heaven are those who love lying and who practice lying. Make no mistake about it. God's holiness means that he deals drastically with liars. This was a comfort to David as he cried out to God in prayer. His enemies were lying about him, but they would not succeed. And it's a warning for our own lives to guard our own mouths, to guard our own tongues. And then the sixth step. Look at verse 6, the last line. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God abhors. That word means he, he hates. He, he loathes. He despises. It's this deep-seated hatred for murderers and deceivers. The sixth step of God's holiness in, in these verses, it's found here at the, at the end of, of verse 6. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Both liars and and murderers are desperately wicked. But oftentimes we don't see it that way. Uh, we can understand why God hates murder. But, you know, lying, it don't really seem all that bad to us. But the same evil is at work in both the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. God abhors both. They're, they're both sin. And there are many ways of bloodshed. Right? We think of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament where he says... If you have hate for someone else in your heart, you've already committed murder. For hating others, there's bloodshed. There are many ways that this can be applied as we see that God abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. And we think of the the absolute horrible, horrible atrocity in our own nation. And people say that this is a Christian nation. This horrible atrocity is abortion. And just this year, just this year alone, there's been over 847,978 abortions. I checked this morning. This year alone. And I can think of no other more innocent blood being shed in the place where a child is supposed to be the safest. In our own nation. Friends, we better plead. We better plead for the mercy of God. Because wicked nations get wicked rulers and get the judgment of God. But God always has his remnant. And God always delivers his people. What are we doing? What are we doing for the most helpless? Or to deliver those are being led away to the slaughter. And I've been on the front lines on those clinics and I have ministered to mothers and fathers alike. And if you've experienced that, if you're a father and you've had your child taken from you through abortion, 
And if you're a mother and you've chose to do that, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness. It's, it's only through Jesus. In a crowd this large, there are obviously some. And that's not me condemning you. That's me telling you that there is forgiveness. And there is hope. And there's freedom. Freedom from shame. Freedom from guilt. And it's found only in Jesus Christ. God hates bloodshed. God is a holy God. And we begin to, when we begin to see this true picture of who God is, oh, it should humble us. It should bring so much thanksgiving and adoration and worship from our hearts. God, I have offended you every way there is to offend you. But because of what Christ has done for me, Lord, you have forgiven me. You have brought me into your family. You have adopted me. God, I was your enemy, and now you have set me down at your table, and you call me son. You call me daughter. Oh, Lord, what a merciful, merciful God you have been to me. We ourselves, we should avoid all that God hates. And so if we love and if we approve and if we entertain that which God hates, how can we expect God's love and God's blessing upon our lives? Our slide in Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 says... Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So friends, not only are we not to participate in in the evil deeds of darkness, but we're to expose them. And that takes, it takes discipline not to participate, but it takes a whole lot of courage to shine the light and say, this is evil. I'm going to expose it. Whatever that evil is. God is holy. And yet, praise be to God, God is loving. God's wrath against sin is not the last word. If it were, then David himself would be without hope. We too would be without hope. The Bible records that David lied several times during his life. And when David sinned with Bathsheba, he committed both murder and deception. Yet David sets himself apart from sinners. Look at verse 7. He says, but as for me, he's saying, but, but me, Lord, but, but I... As for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter into your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence to you. David's hope is not only in God's holiness, and there is much hope in that, but he also rests in a second part of God's character, that God is loving David sings about this experience of God's love in verse 7 and in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Oh, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. We saw there in verse 7 that as for David, how could he come before God's presence? By your, by God's abundant loving kindness. Your version may say, by God's steadfast love. It means God's covenant loyalty. It means God's commitment to love for his people. David knows he does not deserve to come before God. He doesn't say this. David does not say, I will enter your house because I've been a really good man. But as a sinner, David was confident he could enter God's presence Because of God's unfailing, faithful, covenant love. Look at verse 7 again. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. I will come into your house, God. 
I'm not going to stand at a distance. But like a child coming into his father's house. Many of you do not know my middle son, R.C. He's three years old. He is wreaking havoc back there on our staff. I love that kid. And sometimes I don't go down. We have a little, little building behind our house. Sometimes I don't go down there to work on my sermons, uh, whether it's cold or raining or just if my books are up at the house. Sometimes I'll work on my sermon in our bedroom. And um, Whitney does such a good job. She's, uh, I had that image of her of like, uh, you know when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and there was that cherubim with the flaming sword and wouldn't let anyone enter? Like, she's, that's her. She doesn't let anyone enter the bedroom. When dad's working on his sermon. As with five kids, there's lots of craziness at times. And so she'll get distracted with one. And as she's being a good mother taking care of that one, R.C. always seems to slip by her defense. And I'll be in there working on my sermon, whatever I'm doing, and he'll crack that door, and he'll stick his little head through the door, and he'll smile his little toothy grin, and about that time I hear Whitney's footsteps, R.C., don't bother your dad! And then she'll, she'll be coming that way. I'll hear her walking to snatch him, and he'll look at me. I'll say, come on in, buddy. And the whole time she's like, R.C., R.C., where are you? He'll come in, I'll hug him. I'll say, oh, buddy, I love you. I needed a break. That was perfect time. And I'm I just so engaged. When, when he opens that door, it's just like, oh, that break time, a little smile, give me a hug, rough him up a little bit. And Whitney will open the door and say, I'm sorry. I'll say, no, no, no. He's always welcome in here. I, I, I love him. I, I want to see him. What, what a relief just to take my mind of all I'm doing and, and just see my son for just a minute. And then she ushers him out the room and she closes the door. But we have that picture here in verse 7, don't we? I will enter your house. I'll come into your presence. I'm not going to stand outside the gate. I'm not just going to hang out in the lobby for a little bit. But like a son or a daughter, I'm welcome. I can go into your presence. And not because I'm an all right kind of dude, not because I try really hard, not because I'm better than I used to be, but because of Jesus, because of your abundant loving kindness, God, I will come into your house. David doesn't come on his own merits. He, he doesn't come on his good works. He has a whole lot of sins like we all do. But he comes in the multitude of God's mercy. He approaches God with confidence and with assurance based on God's immeasurable grace. He can come before God because of who God is. And how interesting here at verse 7, he says, At your holy temple I will bow in reverence to you. The actual temple was not even built at this time. But though we know the temple means God's presence. He's saying, God, I will come into your presence. We, we think of Daniel when he would pray and he would open the window towards Jerusalem and he would pray to God. We have to ask ourselves this morning, have we opened our own hearts to heaven, to God's presence? The world rejects God's love like it rejects God's holiness. And, and there's one of two ways they do that. One way they reject God's love is they say things like this, I'm not even going to try to please God. I, I don't care. That, that's irreligion. Uh, I, I, I'm just not going to go to church. I don't do Christian things. I'm going to live however I want. I'm, I'm going to reject God's love completely. But there's also another way that we can reject God's love. And that's when we think, I'm going to be a really good person. I'm, I'm going to work my way to heaven. I'm going to impress God. I don't need to have faith in Christ Jesus. I don't need God's love. I'm going to win God's love. And we try to work really hard to earn God's love. That's another way to reject his love. We're, we're, uh, we're self-reliant kind of people. But it's a humbling experience for us to accept that not a single good thing we do can make us right with God. We have to depend completely on his love. Sin will keep you out of God's presence. And yet your own good works will not get you into his presence. 
The only way for a sinner to come before God is by God's loving kindness. God's undeserved, merciful love. And God offers his mercy and his love through his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the scriptures say in Titus 3, 4 through 6, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God's unwavering love for you in Jesus Christ should give you immense confidence. When you come to him in prayer, you will have such boldness when you are reminded that God loves you. That God will not abandon you. That he will rescue you. That you can count on him to hear and to answer when you call. Even when your prayers are just groans and cries and very few words. And look lastly with me here at verse 8. He says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. Just as a, a little child is led by the hand by their father, just as a blind man is led by his friend, it is a safe and pleasant experience when God leads the way. We need God's righteousness. We need God's way. So we'll end with this this morning. Have you given up on your own way? Have you trusted in Jesus to walk in his way? And Christian, that'll give you great confidence when you come to your father. When you know how holy he is and how much he hates sin. And then you come to see how much he loves you because of Jesus Christ, his infinite love for you. You can come to a father and you can pray and you can be heard and he will care for you. Let's pray. Oh God, you are unlike anything else. There's really nothing to compare you to. We just need you. Our Christian walk, oh Lord, that we would daily be fighting sin, that you by your, by your spirit would strengthen us to fight against sin, to live a, a life that is sold out for you. And that we would know that because of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, you love us. You forgive us of all of our sins, all our sins forgiven in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.